Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and this is episode 69. And today is our second part of our conversation with Justin C. We're going to be talking about what does it mean when we experience fragmentation as a people, and how do we root our identity within community? Let's do this. We talk about the generations and then, you know, the title of your book references the sheet of scattered sand, which is a reference to Sun Yat-sen. Am I right? So why did you pull that quote from Sun Yat-sen and how does it apply to Cantonese Protestants? So there was this brilliant moment in a focus group in Vancouver where I asked some people about a recent election, municipal election for the school board. They were wanting to you know, elect a slate of concerned parents because of a school board's turn towards transgender rights. One of these people was a Chinese Christian. And so I said, this guy definitely represents you guys, right? Like he's Chinese Christian. He speaks for you. Like, would you say that he's like one of your leaders <laughs> to which the focus group erupts in laughter? You know, I was sort of sitting there as this confused second generation, like looking at them, like, what's going on? They said, uh, we did not push him out. He came out himself. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, you know, we don't really have any leaders. And then suddenly one guy sat back and just said, we Chinese people are a sheet of scattered sand. Now that quote was just so poetic. And I had heard interviewees, you know, refer to Chinese Christians as a sheet of scattered sand, meaning that they had no political unity, that every time they did something, they ended up splintering into the sort of alphabet soup of, you know, nonprofit organizations. (laughs) You know, and they felt really bad about this because like, if only they could get their act together, maybe they could stop this sort of transgender onslaught, but they can't get their act together, which is one of these things that I, I think the book is trying to reveal because often Chinese Christians are seen as this you know, unified political bloc because all Chinese people are the same, right? Oh, LOL, right? So that's really why I pulled that quote. I later learned, because I'm a guy who does interviews, I don't read, I was giving a presentation on this, and I was like, isn't this amazing? Like, there's all these quotes about, yeah, Pun San's a sheet of scattered sand. And some white guy in the back said, that's Sun Yat-sen. And I was like, you would know, wouldn't Whoa. you? So that's how I learned to attribute it to Sun Yat-sen. Father of the nation, <laughs> great Chinese Christian. That's himself. so awesome. Oh my gosh. That's yeah. amazing. What an amazing story. That is academia, right? The white people always know more about your texts, but they don't really know how to order food on the menu. Oh, gosh. Shots fired, and we're done. No. But but some of that makes so much sense, right? That that most people would see Chinese people as just this homogenous group where the biggest group, the biggest ethnic group in the world has, of course, multiple borders, multiple countries, tribes, everything in there. But yet 
I don't know. It's interesting to hear that. That's the national ideology of the uh, People's Republic, right? That all Chinese people are one blood, that, you know, we are, we're all brothers and we can make more brothers with this like one belt, one road kind of thing, right? And together achieve the China dream, right? I write within this academic field called Sinophone Studies, which is a term coined by the UCLA professor Shumei Shi. And what she points out is that, you know, this word Chinese covers all multitude of sins because usually what we mean by Chinese is we, we mean Han Chinese. That, that's the ethnic group. Chi- Chinese-ness doesn't mean anything. Right. But there are many people who are touched by the ideology of Chineseness. And th- this is the thing about Chineseness, right? Like because it's an ideology, it can it can have its sort of fantasy tentacles everywhere. And so everyone who's touched by Chineseness somehow never forgets that sort of touch. So what Sinophone Studies tries to examine is the way that everyone who has been touched by Chineseness sort of reckons with the world in all its sort of fragmentary ways. And so the secular in a sheet of scattered sand is sort of a gesture towards that, right? That what is a useful category of analysis when talking about Chinese people is actually the fragmentation stuff. I'm sorry, when you say it like that, it almost makes the Juxing title not even just for the second gen, but, oh man, for the original people. <laughs> that That's actually the final exam question in my uh, Chinese American studies. Classes, to what extent? Passed. To what extent are uh, are all Chinese people juxing? Oh wow, this is some deep. <laughs> yeah, I hope none of your students are listening to this podcast and they're like, "We need to study for that question right now." <laughs> all right, um, I uh, don't teach that class anymore. Actually, I taught it so badly the first time that I sort of wrote confessionally on the blogosphere because that's what you do on blogs, right? You don't write information; you write confession. And someone picked up on my confession and wrote a song on it. So the song's titled Joke Sing Cafe. So there's a song written about my class by this guy who didn't take my class online. The reverse is also true, right? That if Chinese-ness is this ideological, monolithic sort of tentacle monster, shall we say, then there is no such thing as generations. We're all Chinese. Or if you want to go one, one level lower... We're all Sinophone because we don't know what we are. We just know that we speak this language in relation to this other language and have existential angst because of it. Well, and I I think it actually even gives room for our friends who don't speak their parents' native tongue because they're still touched by this ideological Chinese-ness as much as those who do speak it. And so this, this fragmentation that you're talking about actually gives room for us to theologically interpret ourselves in different ways, where I think that we're no longer defined by how close we're assimilated to the dominant culture or how far away we are from our parents' culture, which I think is really cool. And one entry point, as Shumei Shi puts it, is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Because if you listen carefully to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon's characters, they all come from different regions, all try to speak Mandarin, some better than others, but they're all in one movie that pretends to be Chinese. Oh my gosh. That, okay. I gotta go back and watch that now. Oh. <laughs> Ang Lee is, he's listening to this podcast and he just can't believe the comment you just made. He's going to write it on a blog somewhere. Let's just say that. And someone will write a song. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Man, this is mind blowing. I got to say it's mind blowing because 
in a way, you're kind of moving backwards. You're kind of going back to deconstruct it a bit, and you're finding out all these origins, and you're finding out all of these ideologies and where they came from, or perhaps not have come from, and and you're also looking at the lens of where they are right now. And I feel like, like a comic book origin story. Yeah, like a know? comic book origin story. Exactly, exactly. What's the radioactive, you know, <laughs> you know, sludge that the person found themselves in? But like, I would have to say this is that where do we go from here? Is because so much of those ideas, that framework, that language, has not only become embedded in kind of the way we relate to one another and the way we understand Chinese culture. But it has also led to specific trains, like schools of thought, and how people relate to one another. I mean, like that's why I think listening to you is really fascinating because, as you kind of picking apart the whole idea about generational and you know Chineseness and such like that, I'm really thinking about you know the current context of you know serving in a Chinese church, and right now, like it's it's automatically like oh yeah yeah like you know. That's the second generation. That's the third generation. And you're right. Like you shared about it for yourself. It's so hard to escape from because we're so entrapped in it. I don't want to use, really use the word entrapped, but it's kind of really what it means, right? Like, so like, where do we go from here? Like, like if we need to reclaim something new and if we need to move forward in a different direction, what are your thoughts about where can it move from this point onwards? That's a really interesting question. Partly because I'm nervous about the we, you know, as I said, as we opened up, right? Like I, I'm a wannabe Chinese Canadian Christian. In a sense, I am a Chinese Canadian Christian just in the Greek Catholic Church of Kiev, which is not where you guys are at. And I think, you know, just as, you know, the Sinophone is hopelessly fragmented, I think the body of Christ is also hopelessly fragmented, right? The, the fact that we can't take communion together means that that the body of Christ is broken. Boom. Boom. Right. And, and a lot of the, the theological reflection on the secular really comes out of reflections on schism. So, and I can unpack that later on if you're interested, but, the, but what I'm gesturing towards is like, okay, so who is the we here? Seems to be that, that it's an ecclesial we that you're talking about. I can only speak yep. for myself then. I joined the Greek Catholic Church of Kiev because they were in solidarity with us younger Chinese Canadian Christians during the Umbrella Movement in 2014 in Vancouver. All we really wanted, because we didn't know how to do politics because we're second generation apolitical people, all we wanted to do was pray about it. And the Chinese churches were like, that's a little bit too political. Here comes this Chinese Canadian Jesuit on the back of a pickup truck, you know, leading Byzantine chants in front of the Chinese consulate. And we're like, that looks cool. Uh, what <laughs> church is he part of? And he he goes, you know, I'm Eastern Catholic. And we're like, what does that mean? He goes, you know, like, uh, we're in full communion with the Roman Catholic Church, but we're actually Orthodox. We're like, you can be that? Like, what, did you just make this up? Like, what do you, what are you, who are you? And he goes, oh, I'm technically in the Ukrainian Greco-Catholic Church. We're like, you're not Ukrainian. He goes, you have to be Italian to be Roman Catholic. We're like, oh, good point. So we were like, how does one join this church? And he goes, send me an email. So I sent him an email that's like, what happened? Like, I became a catechumen, and then seven months after that was received into the Greek Catholic Church of Kiev. 
Now, when I was received into this church, I discovered that this church was embroiled in what they called ethnic politics. You know, broadly speaking, the politics in our church, we write about this openly. We're not like the Chinese church that likes to keep all our politics kind of swept under the rug. We're, we're Ukrainian. We, you know, talk about this openly, right? So really the, the political sort of football is, you know, the ethnic politics of our church. Are we an ethnic church? Or are we the Church of Jesus Christ? Now, you know, th- that, that sort of stark difference, you know, automatically tips the scales in, in, in the favor of the Church of Jesus Christ because no one wants to be a heretic, right? <laughs> but the truth is that it's a, lo- it's a little bit more complicated than that because this Church of Jesus Christ has a history that is located in Kiev. And the conditions of the founding of our church and the reason why we're in communion with Rome has a lot to do with the way that Ukraine has been colonized every which way by the Byzantines, by the Russians, by the Poles, by the Austro-Hungarians, by the Soviets, and now by neoliberalism. So like, there are multiple colonizations in which you know, Ukrainians have to sort of discover who they are all over again every time someone more powerful than them wants their land, right? Now, this really made me reflect on, like, why did I join this church in the first place? Oh, it was because I wanted to pray with the umbrella movement. And so this church hasn't actually made me Ukrainian. This church has actually made me think a lot about where my family is from, which is Hong Kong. That sort of theological trajectory was what led me into all of these musings about Cantonese-ness and Sinophone and all these things, right? Because I'm trying to think about, okay, well, who am I is not an abstract question. Who am I is, okay, so where are my folks from? And how did they raise me as a child? And what are the ways that I understand intimacy? These are the questions of identity, I think. Or or as I tell my students, when, when we talk about identity, oftentimes we think about identity as the sort of abstract concept. And I go, no, identity is not about abstractness. It's about whom and how you love. And that, that's what my church taught. Man, I wish that I took your class when I was in school. <laughs> that would have been so cool. But then I probably would have gone way over my head. Let's just be honest. <laughs> well, I love that line, you know, your identity is grounded in community. It's beautiful, I, and I think it's it's even biblical. I was with my church, and I think we were introducing one another. And I, they said, okay, you know, the usual, you know, your name, a fun fact, or whatever. And I, I said, okay, we always do the fun facts or the weird facts or the worst fact. And I was getting a little bit tired of those things. So I said, okay, so maybe the question that we need to ask is to whom do we belong? Because I think as Western Protestants or people located within a Western framework, our identity is often what we do. And now that's slowly changing to something else. But I think the way you illustrated that so beautifully just now is who is your community? Who do you love? That makes a lot of sense. So if I can take us back a little bit in your story to when you were an Anglican, you know, you and I have had a little bit of a chat about this. You and I also have mutual laments about certain things, but I'm particularly interested in this running thread of the neo-Calvinist movement among Cantonese Protestants, particularly among those we call the second generation. Do you have any speculation on that, where it comes from, how it relates? Does it have something to do with our angst? 
I think it does. Now, I'm no expert on this. I, I, I just was New Calvinist at one point, and so I just sort of tell people about how I got suckered in. But really, the expert on this is Andrew Ong, who studied at the University of Edinburgh with my bro slash boss, Alex Chow. So he's really the one who's done the work on examining New Calvinism. And, you know, to his credit, he himself is a New Calvinist. So, like, you know, it's sort of an insider's job, so to speak. I'm, I'm much more of an outsider and have my sort of critiques of the movement. But I really think that there's a way in which New Calvinism appealed to me as a first-year undergrad, struggling with things that did not seem theological. How to get a girlfriend. What does it mean to be a missionary in the secular world? You know, because you're taught that as a child, you're just never taught how to enact it, right? What What does the Bible mean for my life? And, you know, the new Calvinists, at least in the mid-2000s, with the configuration of, say, Mark Driscoll at Mars Hill Church and John Piper's alignment with Passion Worship Band, and even people like John MacArthur, you know, there, there was this sort of ring of authenticity to what they were saying, right? And some of these people, like Piper, R.C. Sproul, drawing from the Puritans, J.I. Packer, who was our, like, local boy in Vancouver, right? You know, they, they drew from the Puritans, and they would, they would say things that, you know, sounded really smart to an undergrad, you know, like, you think that the Puritans are these people who want to kill your sex drive, but they actually talk about a greater desire driving out desire. We're like, whoa, right? Like, oh my God, right? Like, can, can you believe what I just heard? It's like appealed to every contrarian thing in my college heart, right? So I think it had to do, at least for me, with this kind of existential angst that I was undergoing in college. Look, my college music was Coldplay, Fix You. My college movie was Garden State. I was an angsty college student, right? So that's the thing that New Calvinism sort of appealed to because, you know, to sort of approach that void, these people had working answers that sounded sufficiently complicated. Oh, the other thing that they would also say was, you know, complementarianism, right? So they, they, they would say like, oh, okay, so, you know, there's patriarchy where men are in charge and women are subordinate. We don't like that, they said. And then there's feminism, where they hate the men and the women are in charge. We're the middle ground. We're like, whoa, what's the middle ground between these two? It's called complementarianism, where men and women just have different roles. Men are leaders and women are followers. And we're like, whoa, that sounds so deep. <laughs> All right. Again, a kind of complex sounding answer that sort of spoke to my existential void. And then you wake up eight years later and we're like, hey, how is that not patriarchy? Good question. <laughs> I had to breathe there for a minute because you have me laughing so hard. It's like you woke up from the matrix and you're like, whoa, I got red-pilled by radical orthodoxy reading John <laughs> Milbeck. <laughs> yeah, you've moved from Anglicanism into and new, new Calvinism into Eastern Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox, but yet you can't. I mean, your work kind of still ties you to the Cantonese Protestant world, but you also can't seem to kind of step out of it. I mean, you're even hanging out with us. So, how would you how would you talk about your relationship with Cantonese Protestants today? 
there was this Calvinist guy who loved to troll me after I became Eastern Catholic because he was a Putin supporter and I was not. You know, this is one of the things about be- being a Ukrainian Catholic. You can't be a Putin supporter because Putin doesn't want our church to exist. So he would say, oh, Justin, you have such an Oedipal relationship with Asian American evangelicalism. And, you know, that really bothered me to say that I had an Oedipal complex. So I went back and read my Sophocles. And on the other hand, I said, damn straight, I have an Oedipal (laughs) complex with Asian American evangelicalism. (laughs) It's fine, you know, it's fine to admit that you have daddy issues, right? So I, I would say that there is some of that. And I openly confess that on the blog when I used to have a blog on Pathias. Like, I actually have a post titled My Oedipal Relationship with the Asian American, with Asian American Evangelicalism. Look, there's a way of joking about the Oedipus complex, and then there's a way of really getting into the Freud, right? Because what Freud says about the Oedipal complex is that, you know, it makes sense because this is the way that you were taught intimacy. And intimacy is not a concept. Intimacy is a, is a structure of feeling that is related to how your body works. All right. And so, look, I was raised in an environment where when I hear a guitar plucking out four chords and singing softly about Jesus in a smelly youth room, I free associate that with intimacy, right? Uh, there are other forms of intimacy that I've encountered in the Kevin church, like Galician chant, which I often refer to as, like, if you want to do Galician chant well, you should listen to Mariah Carey. But really, my relationship with Asian American evangelicalism is, you know, in a classically Freudian sense, it's an Oedipal relationship because Asian American evangelicalism taught me what intimacy and authenticity meant. Yeah, that's real. Thank you for being honest and open about that. I think you're right. I think we, what I'm, you know, you joke about needing therapy. I think we all need therapy sometime or another. But what I'm hearing from you right now is this tremendous grace that you have towards your journey. And I really appreciate that. There was somebody who messaged me recently who's still sort of swimming in New Calvinist waters. And, you know, I had to bite my tongue because when they referred to Piper and MacArthur and who's the new guy? Oh, right. Keller. Um, sorry. I had to bite my tongue because I, I was like, no, this is a very tender moment. Right. Because we are talking. Uh, we're not just talking about theology as ideas. We're talking about theology as the intimate approach to the one who is, even though that that approach feels like the cloud of unknowing. And so the language that this person has for that approach is a new Calvinist grammar. And so I have to be honest that at one point, Piper's desiring God spoke to me quite deeply because it was about how I as a person could desire God and that I was and that he was most glorified in me when I was most satisfied in him. That's real. I don't think that anymore. Like That formulation doesn't make any sense to me theologically anymore. But at the time, it really spoke to me because that was the language that I had for approaching the cloud of unknowing. Yeah, I resonate with, I guess, Xenia, what you're calling grace, what the Jesuits would call consolation. 
but it also requires a little bit of discipline on my part not to make snide jokes. Man, I feel like with this podcast, I have laughed so much and at the same time feel challenged. I think we probably have lost listeners as well as gained some new ones. So this is going to be awesome. And I think we could probably talk forever. This is going to be, you are, de- you are definitely in the same family as, as the four of us, for sure. <laughs> I think this is really awesome. So thank you so much, Justin, for joining us today. Man, I feel like the things you've left us with are, have been mind-blowing, challenging, and cause us to think. So thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, if I could say one more thing. Thank you for doing the Nuns and Duns series and for starting with Helen Mo. Helen was a very instrumental part of my spiritual journey in 2015. But the first thing that she taught me was that it was okay to have friends in academia, that not everybody is the competition, right? And the second thing was that when I was sort of very seriously considering Eastern Catholicism, this, you know, unchurched, done with church Helen says, why don't you do it? And I go, I would never do this. And she goes, I dare you. And here I am. So I'm very thankful to have heard Helen's voice again on your podcast. It brought back all sorts of memories and consolations. I didn't know her that well, but I mean, that just speaks to the sort of presence that she had. So thank you. We appreciate you saying that. Yeah, Helen's story was definitely one that got us starting to think about doing that series. And listening to her story challenged us to rethink a lot of things. And thank you, Justin, for spending your time with us today. To all of those who are listening to us, we appreciate you jumping into this conversation. What did you think? We'd love to hear how you are reflecting on what Justin has shared today. You can get in touch with us via Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or by email. Our email is contact.campodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. What are some of your thoughts about fragmentation and about to whom we belong to? And how does that influence our theologies? And how does that affect our communities? So let us know, and we hope to hear from you soon. If you haven't done so already, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and share it with others. That helps us to get this conversation out there, and we'd love to be able to reach more and more people with it. Once again, you've been listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and on behalf of Xenia, Bernard, and Shu, we hope you'll join us on this journey. See you next time.